guys, Ashley Campbell here. Before we dive into this month's episode, I thought I'd just go over some changes that are coming to the show. First off, we launched a new website. You can now find us at holymedia.com. That's W-H-O-L-Y media.com. Check it out. It's pretty cool. The biggest change coming to Holy Media is that Jeremy is no longer with us. Don't worry, he's just decided to focus on his editing career, especially since he got a recent promotion. For those of you who don't remember, Jeremy works as the religion editor at Real Clear Politics. So congratulations to Jeremy, and don't worry, he will be back as a guest in future episodes. So from here on out, Holy Media will feature a different guest each episode, and they'll join me in a discussion about some topic related to religion and media. And to make it a bit easier on me as I begin my PhD this month, the show is going to switch from two episodes a month to one episode a month. Also, you'll notice that the opening beer segment is gone. If that was something that you really enjoyed, you should check out the show notes for each episode. I'm still going to include a suggested episode beer pairing in the show notes on holymedia.com. Lastly, Religion Nerd Moments will continue. So remember to stay tuned at the end of this episode for this month's moment. And with that, I welcome you to the revised version of Holy Media. I'm Ashley Campbell, and this is Holy Media. Welcome to episode three, everyone. Uh, So this month on Holy Media, we'll be talking about religion during the two political conventions that took place last month. Um, During these political conventions, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were nominated as the party presidential candidates. And although these conventions are often seen as a time for each party to unify behind their chosen candidate, they're actually performances of national sentiment. Conventions express the hopes and dreams that each party has for the country they envision for the future. And that makes them really fascinating media events. And to join us to talk about religion during these conventions is Jim Wallace. Jim's expertise on religion and politics is extensive. He holds a doctorate of theology and is currently finishing his dissertation on political science and international relations. He also teaches at Boston University's Party School of Global Studies, which is actually where I met him as a student in his international relations and religion class. He, Jim is also the founder and CEO of Lacuna Group International, which is a consultant company working at the intersection of culture, religion, human rights, and international affairs. Jim's also served as a religious leader and political advisor for over 30 years. But in spite of all of those qualifications, Jim's interest in political conventions comes from his childhood. He can still recall watching the 1960 conventions that nominated Kennedy and Nixon. He's also a self-identifying convention geek and continues to watch both conventions from start to finish every election season. So, welcome to Holy Media, Jim. Well, thank you, Ashley, and it's great to be with you. Uh, I am a convention geek. And uh, what you didn't say was that when I watched those as a child, I usually watched them by myself because nobody else was interested. (laughs) But I was quite content to sit in front of our little black and white TV and watch the conventions from start to finish for hours. And I've been hooked ever since. And so uh, I watched both the Republican and Democratic conventions. And some of the time I had friends watching with me, but 
there were other times I was watching alone again. So I felt quite at home. So as a convention geek, what religion moment did you find memorable from this year's uh, conventions? Well, I guess uh, on the Republican side, a, a couple of things struck me. I mean, the Republicans came first. One is, as I reflected on previous conventions, this is probably the one that was the most um, non-religious, overtly non-religious, of any Republican convention I've seen in years, mm -hmm. going, going pro back at least uh, 30 years. And... Uh, Usually, uh, the Republican convention waves the flag of religion as much as it waves the flag of the United States. And high-profile religion leaders are given key speaking slots. And often in the Republican um, uh, uh, candidates, you, you will have um, religious leaders that will be candidates in the primaries. And they are usually given speaking spots, even if they lost. And so, uh, one of the things that struck me was that was how few uh, leaders, religious leaders, spoke at the Republican convention. Yeah, and and it was particularly interesting too. I think that because Trump has often been compared with Reagan this election season, that you know there was a lack of overt religion even in Trump's acceptance speech. I don't think he mentioned God, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, boy, we could get started on this one. Um, Trump's speech wasn't exactly morning in America. I can promise you that. It was not. <laughs um, it was more I apocalyptic, I felt like. Yes. As, as one of my uh, friends said, it was more like hell in America. <laughs> and so, um, anyway, yeah, Trump did not, he, he was not as overt about religious things in his speech as uh, even Hillary was. And, you know, we can say more about that. The, the other thing in the Republican thing was, uh, was I was very interested in what Jerry Falwell Jr. said. Uh, because I heard a, a radio interview of him the week before the convention, and he was sort of promoing what he was going to say, and he started quoting the Bible, and he totally misquoted it. And I was, I was driving in my car, and he was saying to this, uh, this journalist that was interviewing him, you know, as the Bible says, and he starts quoting it, and I found myself driving down the road screaming at the radio in my car. I've been there. <laughs> going, you idiot, that is not what the Bible says. You know, I, I would think you would know better, but... Uh, yeah, of, of all people, Jerry Falwell Jr., you would think would be quoting it correctly. Oh, yes, and, and so I, I listened to him speak, and he didn't make any faux pas like that in his speech, at the convention, but I still, I just, I'm utterly, I think his father would be rolling over in his grave. I really do. Um, because uh, so much of what Trump is and Trump stands for uh, is antithetical to what his father preached and taught throughout his career. So um, that one mystified me. On the Democratic side, um, I guess... Um, I was I was interested to see how many visible religious um, 
people there were in the audience. You, yeah. you, you saw women wearing hijabs. You saw people from different faith traditions wearing the either the clothing or the, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, jewelry or necklaces or things that identified them uh, with their faith. And it seemed like in the Democratic convention, the, the TV cameras went out of their way to show people who were clearly uh, identifying their um, religious tradition there on the floor of the Democratic convention. I guess the, the, the moment that grabbed me in the Democratic convention was uh, the last night, Kieser Khan's speech. And I, I, was, I was absolutely blown away by what he said and the way he said it and mm -hmm. identifying himself as a, as a Muslim American uh, and uh, being so open about his faith as he addressed Donald Trump, who has, um, who has spoken less than kindly about Muslims in America. But I, I would point out, before we get into the whole, um, and before we start to really dive into the, the cons and, their, and his, Mr. Khan's speech, I would also point out that the RNC did have religious diversity at it too. Um, it just was a little more hidden perhaps. Um, yeah. there was a, there was a Muslim man who gave, uh, an Islamic prayer near the end of the convention. And actually, um, a Californian, uh, representative who is Sikh and she offered, um, a Sikh prayer during the Republican convention too. Yeah. And unfortunately in both the Republican and the Democratic conventions, um, the, the, the prayers which were offered at the beginning and the end of each each uh, convention uh, or each day at each convention uh, were not generally were not broadcast. I was watching it on, on one of the main broadcast channels. Probably if I'd watched C-SPAN, I could have also heard the prayers, uh -huh. but, but I was watching a main broadcast channel and they tended to cut out uh, when, when it came time to broadcast the prayers. Speaking of prayers at conventions, one of the most memorable experiences I had through the years listening to conventions as a kid was um, watching the 1968 uh, Democratic National Convention. And um, uh, that was the one that was so in Chicago and it was so violent and the protesters were outside and it was, there was so much going on. And the last night at the end of the the speakers the last night of the convention, they had Martin Luther King Sr., the father, give the final benediction. And he, of course, 68 was the year that his son was killed. 68 was the year that Robert Kennedy Jr. was killed. Uh -huh. And so he stood up to speak. And of course, people are milling around and talking on the floor. And he just, he commanded the room in a way I've seen very few people do telling people to stop and be quiet because he was going to pray. And huh. he, he offered a prayer of uh, filled with humility and thanksgiving. And um, it was, it, that's one of the more memorable uh, convention religious moments I've ever experienced in all my years of, of watching uh, the, the conventions here in Republican Oregon.
think that makes what happened at the the Democratic convention particularly um, interesting as of late because of the the Democratic Party most often being kind of upheld as in comparison when you're when you're juxtaposing you know the Republicans and the Democrats the Democratic part, Democratic Party as the the secular party or the party of religious diversity. And so they've been struggling, you know, with how to address all of that religious diversity and respect all of it. And usually they've gone for the, the secular approach, at least in my, in my memory. Um, and, but then this year it was, it was completely different. Yes. And I, and I, I think, I mean, I, I, I think at least certainly since, um, Certainly since Reagan, maybe been going back to Nixon, uh, but certainly since Reagan, the Republican Party has become more um, homogeneous and singular in its makeup, and the Democratic Party has become more diversified. And with that diversity, you get not only um, uh, social diversity, social economic diversity, you get ethnic diversity, but you also get religious diversity. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think the Democrats have grappled and struggled sometimes with how do we how do we express this in a way that that doesn't offend people of different faiths in our community. We don't want to deny who we are, you know, whether I'm Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or Sikh or whatever I am. I don't want to deny what I am, but I also don't want to offend somebody that is also in our party that may be different from me. And I think the Democrats have, have struggled with it. And I also think that candidates have struggled with that. I remember uh, when John Kerry was running for president. Um, John Kerry was, a, was a, a religious man. And one of the things he struggled with was how he expressed his um, Catholic faith in the context of the campaign. And he, he had a hard time with that, as did Bill Clinton, as did Al Gore. But I, I heard John Kerry speak at a gathering of religious leaders at Yale University um, a couple of years after that. And um, he admitted that he made a mistake not owning his faith in the context of his campaign, in the context of his convention speech, just being upfront about it. And the interesting thing I found about uh, the Democrat with Hillary Clinton, the candidate, um, Hillary throughout her life, and, and this came out in the in the comments that her daughter made introducing her in the video they showed of her, but, but Hillary has been a devout and consistent and regular member of the United Methodist uh, Church community. She's very much tied into sort of the social justice strain of United Methodism, and it consistently informs her faith, and she's consistent in observing and practicing her faith, attending services, and 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 doing that. And so um, I think Hillary felt much more comfortable with it. And her comfort level with it probably made it easier for other people around her and people at the convention to feel comfortable in, in just being who they were. And so, so what you had was you had this uh, almost this flip-flop uh, in that here the Democratic Party became the party of waving the American flag and, you know, uh, expressing their faith in God. And the Republicans became the, the, the more secularized party that didn't know what to do with their faith and didn't know how to express their patriotism. And it really was quite a contrast and it was really 
quite a reversal, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been, it was interesting. I read a religion news service article that, that pointed out that, you know, the part, the democratic party itself is, has not been devoid of religion over the past years. It's just that the party leadership. And I think that has struggled with how to deal with religion. And that comes out in kind of the anecdote you said about John Kerry, but that with Hillary Clinton, it definitely seems as if there's this recognition that the the leadership needs to re- to to address that topic and to embrace it a little bit more, and I think that was particularly evident when um, uh, Kane uh, was being introduced um, by who was it um, Representative Scott of Virginia, and yeah. actually quoting the Bible and talking about the social justice aspect of it, of religion. Well, and Tim Kaine is a man of devout and consistent faith. Uh, okay. He's 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 an active practicing Catholic, and but he goes to and has attended regularly for many, many years an inner city African-American congregation um, there in Richmond, Virginia, uh, or near where he lives. And when he was governor, okay. he attended in Richmond. And I, I identify with that because... Uh, Several years ago, my wife and I moved in the city we lived in for a short while. Um, we attended a African-American inner city church uh, for a couple of years. We were the only um, white couple in the whole church. and uh, But we would go every Sunday, and, and they accepted us and loved us, and we still feel a part of that community. So when I saw that about Tim Kaine, I sort of identified with you know what he what he did and what he went through. And that was definitely reflected during the convention. Um, I think the majority of religious speakers at the Democratic convention were from the African-American Christian community, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes, uh, there, there were uh, several. I mean, certainly the African-American Christian community, the role of the church and the role of faith in that community has a long and a complex history you know, going back to slave times. Uh, and so uh, they were they were being who, uh, they were allowed to be who they are. And in, in the being who they are, a lot of people got to witness something that they may not have seen before, but it's something that's, as you said in that news article you read, it's always been there. It's, yeah. it's not that they've denied it. It's just sometimes they haven't had the opportunity to express it and let it come out. something you brought up when, when you said that the conventions kind of appeared to be a, a, a reversal or a flip when it came to talking about patriotism and the role of religion in the conventions. Um, there was another article that kind of even proposed that, is this the beginning of a culture war reversal because the Democratic convention embraced and tried to um, combine the, the liberal social values that the Democratic Party has been known for with this religious ideology that we have not seen before. And then abortion didn't really come up that often at the Republican convention, which is a kind of a mainstay social issue, I feel like, for them. Well, and, and I think uh, um, it's too early to make a final judgment on that. I, I, part of it depends on how we define culture wars. I think Democrats have long 
tried to turn the discussion of cultural issues away from just simply issues of abortion and gay marriage and a, 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 a small uh, handful of issues that tend to resonate uh, within certain very conservative communities and broaden it to include issues of, um, of social justice and economic justice and dealing with issues of poverty, dealing with issues of incarceration, uh, broadening the, the, the scope of issues that, that have been embraced. And, and I think that there, that there is beginning to see be a shift amongst Republicans on, on, on this point in that uh, when you look at issues of abortion and gay marriage amongst younger Republicans, those are not as hot button issues to them as are issues like uh, um, uh, uh, human trafficking and uh, and people being sold into sex slavery. Even uh, even there's concern about uh, immigration and uh, you know, revising our immigration laws that have been embraced by younger Republicans. So there's a shift happening there. But I think Democrats are 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 finding their voice and they're finding, hey, we can stand up and be who we are and say what we believe. And even if we may disagree with someone who's who's not religious at all, but they're also a Democrat or a, a, an independent or even a Republican, we can we can be who we are. And yeah. that's a very being who you are is a very liberal value. <laughs> yeah. And and I think Democrats are, are are becoming a little more comfortable with that. So, after this extensive conversation about the conventions, do, is there you know any conclusion we can come to about what these conventions say about the role and the relationship between religion and politics in the U.S. for this coming election? Well, I, I, I want to conclude with a story that I think fits this, and it's it's ironic, and I'll be interested to see how it plays out in the coming days and months uh, up to the election. You know, the the emotional cap, captive moment at the Democratic convention was um, was uh, the Kizer Khan uh, speech with his wife and talking about being a Muslim American. But, and, and people gravitated to that because it was so unusual and because of the debate over the role of Muslims that's come from Donald Trump. And it's sort of like Muslim Americans and the role of Muslim Americans in our societies has all of a sudden become highlighted and people have become sort of fascinated with understanding and knowing more. But what most Americans don't know and don't realize is that the very first treaty that the newly formed United States of America signed in, seven, mm -hmm. in 1786 was the Treaty of Morocco. Yes. And that treaty was written in Arabic and English. And it gives praise to Allah, the great, the mighty, the wonderful, the merciful. And it has at the beginning of it, it has a very extensive statement about praising Allah. Mm -hmm. And 
this the next treaty that America signed, which was in 1797, which is, was the Treaty of Tripoli, was also written in Arabic and English. And it was passed unanimously by the U.S. Congress. And it was it also gives praise to Allah. And I have known this and understood this um, for a number of years, taught about it in my classes and all of that. But I recently decided, you know, being the academic that I am and being one who believes in primary sources, I want to, mm -hmm. I want to see those for myself. Mm -hmm. So in that I'm in D.C., I contacted the people at the National Archives and about a month ago went over there to see the Treaty of Morocco and the Treaty of Tripoli and to see huh. where it actually says that. Of course, it's written in Arabic, but then there's the translation into the English and uh, it's there. And uh, I, I was able through the services of the National Archives to get digital copies of those. And I have digital copies of those. And um, it's, it's interesting that here in this moment, Kizer Khan and his wife have highlighted that we are a pluralistic religious society, that we have people from many faith backgrounds and everyone is valuable and everyone is important. But this is the very value that our founding fathers held so closely. George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, all of those involved in these two treaties. And uh, to see the fact that here in this moment, we're sort of coming back to a rediscovery of what the founding fathers set to do at, at the very beginning, and it involves religion. Uh, that, that to me was a moment that made, made the whole convention experience sort of come full circle to me, was connecting what I know from my academic study happened at the very beginning of our country, and then to see what's happening now. Well, I'm so glad that you, you could take the time to talk to me um, about religion during the conventions. And I hope that your listeners will keep listening to your podcast because I think, uh, I think you'll have more great shows for them. Well, thank you so much. It's time for a religion nerd moment. You're a nerd. A nerd. You're a nerd. On this episode's religion nerd moment, I am paying tribute to two books that I unpacked um, once I arrived in Colorado. Uh, it's really been exciting unpacking my 20 some odd boxes of books um, because I get to rediscover all of these amazing religion books that I have and nerd out over every single one of them. It's also made me like want to reread every single book I own, which is a dangerous rabbit hole to go down. Uh, but the first uh, first book I'm going to mention is actually because um, the author of it passed away recently. So for those of you who don't know, um, Timothy LaHaye, who was an evangelical minister in the United States and author of the famous Left Behind series, passed away on uh, July 25th. Of, two, of this year. Um, and I own a book he actually co-wrote with his wife, Beverly. Um, and I had to buy it because of 
the history of the Christian right class that I took um, for my master's in religious studies. And the title of the book is The Act of Marriage, The Beauty of Sexual Love. Um, it's a very interesting book. Um, let's just say it led to some very awkward but interesting conversations in class. Um, so that is one religion nerd moment book that I unpacked and, and out of respect, um, for his life and the work that he did for the evangelical community. That is, uh, my religion nerd moment for Timothy LaHaye's book. My other religion nerd moment and discovery was, um, unpacking one of my favorite books from my religious studies master's degree. It's called The Mormon Question by Sarah Gordon, all about um, the, the legal debate over polygamy in this country during the 19th century. But uh, for those of you who don't know, I really enjoy looking at political cartoons, um, especially when they're representing religion. Um, and one of the reasons why The Mormon Question is a favorite book of mine is because it introduced me to the idea of political cartoons um, and how they visually represent and depict minority religions in this country. So I'll post um, this Thomas Nast cartoon on the show notes. But for those of you who don't know, Thomas Nast was a political cartoonist from the 1800s. And in this particular um, image... He's depicting um, the Mormon church and the Roman church, or Catholicism, as these two kind of beasts climbing the top of the Capitol building and um, being like foreign threats to the secular laws and institutions of the country. Um, And it's definitely a very anti-Catholic and anti-Mormon image. But I uh, just thought that was a really interesting cartoon, given the fact that this entire episode was all about um, religion during the political conventions, and uh, during part of it we talk about religious diversity in the United States. So those are my two religion nerd moments for this episode. If you have your own religion nerd moment, feel free to uh, leave a comment on episode three's uh, show notes at holymedia.com. Or you can use the religion nerd hashtag and tweet at me at D-A-T underscore Campbell. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and I hope you come back next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of Holy Media. Don't forget to check out this episode's show notes at holymedia.com. That's W-H-O-L-Y media.com. You can also find the show on SoundCloud, through the iTunes podcast app, or on Stitcher. Don't forget to also tweet with Holy Media using Ashley's Twitter account, which is at D-A-T underscore Campbell. Thanks for listening. It's been great being with you. It's a lot of fun having this kind of a conversation with you. It reminds me of uh, our days when you were one of my students and we would wax eloquent for a long time over these kinds of topics. Did you think four years ago I'd be having you as a guest on a podcast? (laughs) No, I never did, but I can tell you I'm delighted to be a part of it. And this is Holy Media.